Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyas. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. This is episode four. A world of your imagination. Uh, last episode, we discussed video game design from the way it works to the differences between Eastern and Western games and their cultures. Uh, feel free to check out that episode and any others that may tickle your fancy after this. So this week, we are joined by the wonderful Matilde. Would it's you like me. to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Matilde. I'm currently in my last year of my English degree at McGill University under cultural studies. Uh, I write a lot. Yes. <laughs> Those are my qualifications. I do uh, like op-ed type articles for like uh, opinion pieces. And I also write in creative writing in my free time. And I've been writing since I was like a wee child. A wee child. <laughs> a wee baby. You're still probably more qualified than we are about most of the things <laughs> yeah. we're about. So I, yeah, I, I don't have any like actual credentials, but um, I do a lot of writing, so mm. I Yeah, that's pretty good. I think you write mind. <laughs> well more than both of us do. Thanks. Definitely. So this episode, we're going to be talking about world building. And I feel like this is a kind of semi-Christmassy episode because you know what you do at Christmas. You sit down with a bag of popcorn or chocolate, lots of chocolate, and watch movies a lot. I watch. I I often watch Lord of the Rings at Christmas, even though it's not a Christmas thing. It feels a bit Christmassy to me to just sort of sit and binge something like that. So I think it's fairly apt um, for our Christmas episode that we are talking a little bit about world building. Yes, and I think I mean that could be a topic in of itself: is which Christmas films, wait, which non-Christmas films are actually Christmas films? But I think Lord of the Rings is a pretty good choice. Yeah, um, yeah, Lord of the Rings just feels right to me. It's got the whimsy. It does yeah. have yeah got the snow <laughs> also and i think because it's so long it's the sort of film that you can just sort of like snuggle down on yeah. the sofa and sit and watch when it's dark and miserable outside that's a good point i don't think there are any short christmas films like i feel like uh, they have to be long shrek well, the halls is pretty short yeah <laughs> that's true i mean my my christmas is our family's christmas film is uh the snoopy christmas yeah special. that's always us awesome. it's, it's pretty I've short not seen that. oh it's you've not so, oh, it's so sweet i'm surprised i, I haven't really my mom, i'm pretty sure my mum really liked snoopy when she was younger i highly recommend it snoopy's incredible well. anyway world building um <laughs> yeah well, well, well it's it's the what well, it's the creative process that creates a fictional world within which you then have characters and a story mm. and it can be done in a lot of ways when it's done well you might not even notice it you just kind of get incredibly engrossed in something and when it's done badly, you suddenly hear some funny word and you go, oh, that, where the hell did they come up with that? Yeah. Uh, you were mentioning yesterday, uh, like how people came up with currencies. Yeah. That was just like a thread that I saw that like people like, you know, writers of their own creative stories were like, oh my God, what name? Like they were like agonizing over what name they give their currency. And it's like, you know, what's a stupid real life currency name? The pound. Like, yeah. Well, what? What does that mean? Or like the euro, it literally just means it's Europe, but shorter, you know, like it doesn't have to be a super complicated reasoning. You can just be like the queen's head and like, there you go. There's your currency. The queen's head, probably a popular pub somewhere. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it's, you know, it goes from that all the way through to very deep things. But in essence, uh, as with many things, world building is either hard or soft. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, yep. 
We'll go with that one. Oh, this is a nice <laughs> professional podcast. Um, Extremely and professional. I don't know. How, how would you differentiate the two as professionals, George? As professional, uh, extremely professional in this sort of thing, because I'm always making daydreams in my head. Um, <laughs> yeah, hard world building versus software building. I, I, so I found a video that was really fantastic. We'll leave a link to it in the notes because it's really interesting about the differences. Um, it was by Tim Hickson and Ellie Gordon from Hello Future Me on YouTube. Um, but yeah, basically it's kind of how in-depth they go with explaining the world. And I think that the explaining bit's quite diff- quite important because it's not necessarily that they haven't thought out the what's important in the world that they're creating. It's how they tell it and whether they need feel the need to explain everything. Um, so I saw one comment described it as soft is creating a world for a story. So you've got, I've got a story to tell and you're just creating the world around it that needs to be told um, for the story to work. Whereas hard is more like creating a really in-depth world and then sort of fitting a story into it. Um, so the basic difference is, yeah, like things like Lord of the Rings are really hard world building because there's really in-depth languages. You don't need to know Elvish to be able to understand Lord of the Rings, but it's there. Um, you don't need to know the map of Middle Earth really to understand the story of Lord of the Rings, but it's all there, like all that sort of stuff. Um, whereas soft is more just like telling a story and, hey, look, there's a flying whale. Mm. But it doesn't yeah. matter that there it is. it's yeah. important. You know, one of the things Roll I miss most about books that I used to read is exclusively every single one had a map in the front, like inside front cover. Oh, I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's so None cool. of the books I read now have maps. <laughs> no, I was very much the opposite type of kid. I like didn't like <laughs> books with maps in front of it because I was like, why do I need to know this? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you are the... I like soft world building. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It, 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 a perfect it, segue into explaining what soft world building is yes very good segue um (laughs) it's nuanced so yeah soft world building is i guess it's sort of more letting it play out rather than explaining it to you necessarily Mm -hmm. um so a good example of soft that i found was studio ghibli and like spirited away and that sort of thing it's just starts with a girl just sort of ending up stumbling into this like spa for spirits it doesn't explain why there's spirits what these spirits are why they need to go to a spa it just, they just sort of, they're there. there. They are, yeah. They yeah. want to. They want to. They need a bathhouse too. And like, that's it. And that's what's nice about like stuff like Studio Ghibli is like, it's, and what works and what you need to be able to do in order to enjoy like soft world building is to be able to suspend your disbelief and be mm. able to just buy into the story and be like, yep, all right, there's a bathhouse for spirits. Not going to question it. Just going to go along for the ride, um, which is quite different to uh, like, some stories that do in hard world building where it's like, okay, why is the bathhouse there? Which is like, you know, an interesting take that you could do, but that's just the, the direction that Studio Ghibli decided to go in was just like, just take it on and we'll do the rest of the work. And that, that applies to a lot of what they do, to be honest, like yep. all, all of their productions are kind of, they, they don't spend a lot of time explaining the universe. They just tell a story mm. yep. and you know, the characters aren't always the most fleshed out whatever it is, it's just kind of like the visuals and the the message and, and the tone and the says like Howl's moving castle. Why is his castle like that? Why, why, why is he wandering the plains? Why? Like none of it's super important. It's just like, what do they then do with the castle? What is Howl's journey afterwards? Like it, you just, you take it and you go for the ride. Mm, it's more about enjoying it. Another one I th- example I found was like Alice in Wonderland. That's yeah. very soft world building because it doesn't explain why all these creatures can like have these different things. Why can the Cheshire hat, cat like 
take its head off and stuff like that. It doesn't explain how that works. Yeah. There's no like science behind it. A lot of sort of science fiction and hard world building. It'll be like, well, in this world, you know, the creatures don't need blood to flow around. Like it doesn't need yeah. to explain that. It just sort of goes, here's a Cheshire cat that has a massive grin and can juggle its own head. Like it doesn't. Yeah. But people don't question it yeah. because it's not. It, there, there isn't necessarily that need to understand it. It already is kind of like dreamlike. Can we just have a side note about Cheshire cats? Mm. I'd love to. Um, I, I like. I had never heard of them. Maybe I'm just very unaware of Alice in Wonderland, but I genuinely didn't know that they were a thing or anything about them up until maybe six months ago. And now they get mentioned all the time. And I'm wondering if that was the case forever <laughs> and I just never noticed, or if suddenly everyone around me is talking about Cheshire cats. I think I was there when you realized what Cheshire cats were. Yeah, that was the one that I explained it to you. Did you just think maybe you just thought it was like a, an actual breed yeah. of cat? So I you never I really thought did. about the fact yeah. that it was fictional. So I have a question: Would Star Wars count as soft or hard world building? I think it's kind of in between. Yeah, I was so just I, thinking about that. I yeah. So this hard versus soft thing—it's not really like one camp or the other. It's kind of a scale. Yeah. So obviously you've got things like Lord of the Rings and Dune that we can mention in, in a bit are very much the hard world building end, and you've got stuff like Studio Ghibli very much on the soft end. I feel like Star Wars is somewhere in the middle because yeah. it does have its own set of rules, but equally it does kind of just have a little bit of whimsy and make believe. You don't yeah. really need to overthink why. Chewbacca likes to eat porks roasted on a campfire <laughs> like he just does. Yeah. yeah. I think it, that that comes from the fact that when it started, Star Wars, you know, was a funny thing. It wasn't supposed to be serious. Like Star right. Trek was the serious science fiction. Mm. Star Wars was George Lucas's kind of silly little project, um, which is why it's like more of a space Western than anything, because it is, you know, like a weird tale of like kind of love and fighting and family and whatever that just happens to be set in space with some rules that don't make sense. And essentially, you know, he did that. But then after the original films, he, he did, you know, he did like spinoffs of like weird, like Ewok Christmas specials. There was no direction of like, let's make this into a true universe, a true kind of not cinematic universe, universe, like a alternate universe. Don't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to say those words. Uh, but, you know, I, I, think, I don't think it was until, like, people started writing books and comics that there started to be a law around it. And I think that probably is true for a lot of things, is the written work and the mm. comic style thing is what really solidifies, like, a law. Because that's where suddenly there's loads of people making content and they all have to yeah. adhere to some rules. It's interesting you say that because I was literally thinking that whilst you were saying that, that I was going to add on that it feels to me like stuff that comes from literature is often more hard built. Whereas, well, maybe not always because I guess Alice in Wonderland was a sort of literary book and stuff like Narnia is probably again kind of soft world building and that's come from literature. But I think definitely on the science fiction side of things, literature will is often kind of hard world built because I don't know, I guess it's because it's actually physically written down yeah. on a page you've almost got like fact written in to it whereas on screen you might show something happening in the background but you don't need to explain it because it's just part of the sort of understanding yeah. that the viewer gets i think it also depends on um the fan reactions to the content because that does tend to uh define like what direction the fans of the media would like to take it uh, just because I know like the reason why I brought up Star Wars is because the fans kind of decide like some fans are obsessed with like 
placing everything in the timeline and like making sure everything time like ties up and like there's an explanation for everything. Um, and some fans just really don't care. And they're like, I just am here for the, for the, um, this fancy little lightsabers, uh, which is completely legit. Um, yeah. So I think that like the, the different elements of soft and hard world building get accentuated, accentuated and like, um, extended and like, I don't know, involved depending on where people want to take it as mm -hmm. well. Like, I don't think it's completely up to the creator. I think there is kind of like an exchange going on of like, uh, the creator gives something and then the, uh, the fans like engage with it in a certain way that then transform the world. That's a really good point actually. And I think, I mean, it's especially true for Star Wars. You have, you know, the hugest budget films that get, you know, the kind of amazing amazing viewership and most people are just there to see you know kind of have fun and enjoy it mm. and then there are the people who then go look on wikipedia afterwards exactly and that's me but mm. you know like <laughs> that's not everybody and the fact that they essentially hide a lot of stuff in the films so that those kind of i don't want to call them super fans though because you can be a super fan and not care about any of it but those I guess the an analytical fans. analytical yeah. enthusiasts yeah. will we'll dub that term, <laughs> um, you know, so they, they can have fun like translating the kind of text on the wall in the cafe and go, yeah. oh, that said something stupid. Yeah, that's a reference or it's an that's Easter That's a reference. Egg. But also you have situations in like Breath of the Wild where all of the Sheikah text in the shrines, you've played Breath of the Wild, right? I've played a bit of it, yeah. All of the Sheikah text in the shrines is very literal. Mm. Yeah. Like the text on the ball <laughs> just says stone ball the text on the wall says dungeon, you know, it, it's, it's like, really cute. it's kind of I funny. Like it. but it's more there for the aesthetic rather than. Absolutely. Yeah. But the they decided to, you know, make it literally like entry exit <laughs> as opposed to something, some funny Easter egg, but you know. But yeah, I think it's kind of interesting the way that the fans interact with it though, because I generally I'd say, and I saw someone else comment this um, on that video, soft world build basically allows for fan fiction. Yeah. Whereas hard world building kind of doesn't interesting in a way because hard hard world building they have to, if, to make some fan fiction you have to adhere to all these rules which might you might not even know because they're all there's some of them that have probably got the, the author like knows that mm. you might not and suddenly you change one thing and it doesn't quite work whereas soft world building you probably can sort of step away and go yeah but it doesn't matter we can kind of come up with these right. fun things and it, it's not so important necessarily how it fits in it's just using that same sort of idea and concept. Yeah, I'm actually kind of glad you brought that up because uh, fan fiction and fan space is something I'm very well versed in, embarrassingly. <laughs> um, I do not say that with pride. Uh, but actually, one of, the, one of the things that you have to do with, like, if you want to write a fan fiction or a fan work or do whatever you want um, is you kind of need to come to terms with canon and, like, what actually happens, especially if you're doing fan fiction of, like... Uh, if you're engaging, I guess it's not just fan fiction, but if you're engaging in fan content of a, a hard world build, because you can decide like, okay, canon says these things and there are these strict rules and like maybe it's fun to play within them for some authors, but some authors are like, I, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's like kind of the rule is like, as again, like I, that's what I kind of wanted to uh, emphasize when I brought up like the conversation between the creator and the fans is like the creator doesn't have the final say, even if the creator is like, uh, this specific rule about this specific town is like canonical in the story. The fans can be like, well, we don't like it or we don't necessarily think that that's the best choice and we don't care. We're just, we're just going to make our own canon. Um, and it tends, it's, it's a very interesting um, 
and of course, like everything with fan media gets blown out of proportion. Some people are like, you have to adhere to the canon no matter what, like what the author says is law, like you have to go through it. And then mm -hmm. some people are like, I genuinely do not even care, uh, which can be also frustrating, you know, like it, it's all, it's There's all an entire literary debate around that. Yes. Which is death of the author. So yeah, yeah. death of the author, author's intent versus their, um, uh, their effect. And yes. there's good sides to both. And death the, the author's quite an old theory though. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's, it's interesting distinction between two trains of thought there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it is interesting. It's, there is, I guess sometimes the fans probably lean one way or the other. Yeah. Not necessarily how the author's done it. Like some, some, cause as you said, some people are like, you've got to stick to the canon. Whereas the author might sit there and go, no, you can do whatever you want yeah. with my world. I've created it. You can go around and play in it. Yeah. Whereas others would look at the, the author as like the God of the world. Like yeah. you have to adhere to it. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, the authors don't usually get much of a choice. No, not really. Cause the content will do what the content does. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting going back to soft world building that, um, you wrote down a quote here from Hayao Miyazaki. Love that man. Yeah, his way. He said that his way is to not use logic. It's, it's a, it's a really odd quote to um, digest from someone who's making and writing a story, isn't it? But it actually makes a lot of sense given Ghibli's everything, basically. Yeah. Miyazaki is a genius storyteller, and like this is kind of a really great way to analyze his logic is um he doesn't use any <laughs> he just kind of like looks at the vibes of things and goes yeah that's what we're going for and i mean that's what i love about it that's yeah a lot of ghibli films just have that kind of they have whimsy they're just mm. fun they're just great and then but you know with all that power his um in the studio his in the studio's ability to create aesthetic and theme and like um like feeling i guess have you ever seen a sad ghibli movie yeah. Woo. Woo. They can hit pretty hard. They, they destroy you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what's interesting as well with Ghibli and the way it works though is, I mean, when I've watched them, I have had subtitles on. Right. And because I'm an English speaker, most of the time I don't get the privilege to listen to things not in English, mm. but you almost don't need the subtitles yeah. because you can still understand the story because it's all more visual storytelling Yeah, and you don't necessarily need to understand the rules. Yeah. He, um, he really engages in like archetypes as well. Like, uh, though I do argue that a lot of his characters are quite unique. They do tend to fall under like a general, like one or two facets of their personality. Mm -hmm. um, they're quite monodimensional in a way. Yeah, yeah, which is like, which works to the benefit of the story, I would argue, because like, it's um, like, it's not at the end of the day, it's not about a convoluted plot. It's about getting a message across. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is uh, through archetypes. Um, I'd study a lot of film. Uh, what it's Soviet uh, filmmaking was especially good and effective at their propaganda because they used very simple archetypes and like images to convey immediately like a first thought the danger of that is then you get into stereotypes which did happen um but like you know for example when you want the character to look intellectual and smart they got glasses mm. that's it that's how deep it goes <laughs> which carries the message quickly i'm very feeling very unintellectual sorry on this table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we both have glasses and pablo doesn't be sorry, intimidated <laughs> i am i am intimidated but I can I can meet them. Anyway, everyone should everyone should watch uh, <laughs> Battleship Potemkin. 
It's amazing. <laughs> is that a Ghibli one? I've not seen that one. Nope, it no, is not. Soviet filmmaker. It's by, oh, okay, sorry, yes. Yeah, it's by Eisenstein. It's, it's a... Oh, I love it. Sorry, I'm a film student as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Soviet propaganda piece. But yeah, it's, it it's is. Incredible. It's great. <laughs> it's very cool. I mean, that's interesting that they could use... I guess the way that these, like the soft world building characters work is they give a a base view, which mm-hmm. is probably quite simple and stereotyped. And then it allows the viewer to sort of assign their own yeah. stereotype to it. So if it's part of a sort of, yeah, um, I can't think of the right, the, the right word, that sort of Soviet regime. Yeah. They've, no, they they're already do. pushing stereotypes onto people. So then they show you a bit of media and it just clicks. Yeah, it's great. That's, uh, that's probably why um, it kind of, it's so successful in international audiences is because yeah. it doesn't, create a trope based on a culture you know yeah. like if you look at traditional or disney for example all the tropes are very american culture based mm-hmm. i mean they're, they're trying to go away from that but like well it's not uh so I, I i mean obviously it's hard for us to say as all kind of western people but i imagine the relatability of disney is far lower in japan for example because right. it's not linked whereas mm-hmm. ghibli makes everything kind of vague enough that you can apply your own ideas to the characters and that's probably why it's just kind of they're considered a masterpiece everywhere yeah yeah well it's interesting you said actually because i one of the things that this video brought up about um spirited away was that there's a scene where there's this massive spirit that's covered in goop and and stuff and shiro has to clean it Mm -hmm. and when she pulls off like all the rubbish and it's like bikes and all sorts of stuff it's really pleased and it goes away and it's a bit sort of a river spirit and now to most, it doesn't explain anything more than that, but you can tell from the reactions of the other spirits that it's clearly quite an important spirit because there's, there's, there's some form of hierarchy. And I guess visually it's a lot bigger than the other yeah. ones as well. Um, but apparently in a sort of Asian Chinese cultures, there are different, um, different rivers do actually have different spirits. And so the major rivers do have more important spirits. And I can't remember which one river it was um, and which sort of city it was based around. But apparently there was one that it was like a river was very polluted with these sort of human waste, things like bicycles, shopping trolleys, all that sort of stuff. And so to those sort of viewers, it almost makes sense that that is a specific river spirit. But to, I guess, Western unaware cultures, it's just any old thing. But it still makes sense. It does still make sense. And then there's still, of course, the kind of climate change message yeah i was gonna say because like, oh, yeah. i do believe in the because i i watch all of uh, the ghibli movies dubbed because uh the voice acting is actually pretty good uh and not all of them but like i do believe that they have a little line at the end of it being like oh it was the blah 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 river i don't remember which river it was okay but um but even if we didn't get that like pablo's right we would have gotten the message of like this was clearly a spirit that was being hurt by the gunk because the choice to put like very specifically human waste, like you said, bicycles and like shopping carts, like, and then have them pull it out. And it's such a satisfying scene. Like it gets the message across mm-hmm. quite quickly. And there's no like characters in that one. You know what I mean? Like there's not really like any need for like a specific like exposition into what happened to the river and like who dumped everything into it. All you need to know is rivers polluted, got a bath, no longer polluted. And also, guess who? You know, it's pretty obvious that it's humans. Exactly. So 
so yeah, we have uh, discussed some kind of hard versus software building and some of their kind of aspects, but it, it's worth kind of talking a little bit more about some of our favorite examples of each, because of course we've used uh, Studio Ghibli, we've used Lord of the Rings as two very good kind of distinctive examples, but you know, there are a lot of others. Uh, Star Wars we talked about a little bit, but um, Avatar The Last Airbender is one you wrote down. How would you classify that? Excellence. Obviously. Yeah, it is obviously. <laughs> I'm extremely biased. I love Avatar Last Airbender. Um, I would put that one kind of in between the two as well, because uh, there are hard rules of um, the world of The Last Airbender, uh, like with the bending and like who gets to bend, who doesn't, um, and like what people do when they can or can't bend. And like, uh, it's just, it's just very intricate. And there are little things like the first episode where they go to Omashu for the first time. They really emphasize, like, uh, they really they showcase how they deliver letters and like the mailing system in Omashu and how earthbenders like carry all of the carts. And they have a really cool like chase scene um, uh, in the episode using the carts. And like, that's a really good example of hard world building because it's like, here are the established rules. Here are fun, like, like we didn't need to know how the mail gets carried in Omashu, but they showed us because it was interesting and like really well thought out and like added a depth to the, um, to the, uh, to the world because it's like, it is a quite a different world from ours. So like we, you know, it is interesting to see like how would, how would someone like carry the mail if they could move the earth at will, you know? Um, but at the same time, it is also soft world building because a lot they and we're going to talk about this a little later. But like they use a lot of environmental storytelling as well, like um, because uh, the nations, other than the Fire Nation, are like subjugated <laughs> by the Fire Nation, and you can kind of see that in little things, um, and like uh, yeah, and the way that the characters interact with each other tends to be more soft world building because of the experiences and like how the character like Sokka is one of the only non-benders in the group and like his anxieties that come from that, like that's soft world building because it's not like explicitly said like, Oh, Sokka feels insecure because his sister can move water whenever she wants. He can only throw a boomerang, which is great. Um, but like, mm. you know, like, but the, but we kind of gather that by ourselves being like, of course he would feel a little bit like, inadequate if that's all he can do you know and like he's the only man left in his in his like his village so he's like yeah you feel a bit of pressure so i don't know i i'm just a huge fan of the show everybody should watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no they, they do that really well and this especially kind of essentially the you know they, they define like what the society is mm. but the rules of like you know how kind of vendors versus non-benders are treated how different um people are treated in different places and also just kind of like how the culture exists is all told through kind of the experiences of the characters mm. as opposed to like a hard and fast rule. These people do this, those people do that. Right. Because that would be boring. Yeah, that would be boring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's just, they do a good job with like as well, like the different characters realizing the implications of the things that they are doing. Like Zuko realizing that the Fire Nation is wrong and propaganda and stuff like that and like yeah oh the episode where they uh where they go undercover into a little fire nation town and ang goes to the school and like literally sees propaganda as it's happening like that's hard world building but like oh my god 
it was a very effective use of it because yeah. it, it showed us the rules of the world and in showing us the rules of the world was like, oh, this is completely devastating and kind of overturns what we thought about the Fire Nation because we thought that they were just hardened criminals when in fact it's like, no, this is a fascist regime. Fascist regimes are scary. Like they, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a good show. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll admit, and it might annoy you, I've not actually seen it. That's um, fine. <laughs> you should watch it, so but in, that's fine. But in, in, the, in the show at all, do they ever, like, explain how bending works, for example? Like, is there yeah. any, like, physics almost behind yes. how it works? Uh, so that's more of a hard element, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that would then. be a hard element. There's, like, a few, because there's lightning bending, um, and that's, like, a combination of uh, water bending and fire bending, because, like, uh, you know, lightning is, like, too difficult for... Um, firebenders like kind of use on their own so they have to like kind of guide it and that's a very water bending technique as well as like physically lightning is I guess closer to fire than anything else so mm -hmm. like that's their explanation or like waterbenders can turn things to ice and like earthbenders very few earthbenders can like metal bend because there's little pieces of like earth in the metal and it's mm -hmm. like you know, those are the hard. Well, other way around, there's pieces of metal in the earth. Sorry, my bad. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whoops. Uh, yeah, like little things like steam and stuff like. That. So yeah, there are like hard yeah. rules about like who can do what and what element is uh, and how and how. Yeah, no, there's different. Oh, so cool. They like different martial arts uh, practices define each element and each bending. It's like it looks completely different. So. Must must watch. Recommend. I'll it is a kid's show, though, so you will it have to, like... Show. But, like, you know, that there are a few episodes that you can skip because they don't mm -hmm. really mean much, but also, they're also short. You kind of might as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. She yeah. made me watch it. It's great. So, I mentioned a bit earlier, um, one of... I mean, I'm going to say one of my favorite. I don't know loads about it, but I think it's definitely worth talking about, and that is Dune. Obviously, there's a new movie of it that came out recently. That's basically what I know of it, really. I did start reading it, but it's it's very dense, and it has a map at the front. Hey. Um, <laughs> but Dune is the epitome of hard world building. Like, it is so in-depth. It has so much history um, and all that sort of thing that... Do you need to know it to know the story of Paul basically finding his purpose on Arrakis? Not really. You don't necessarily need to know all these things, but Frank Herbert literally worked out the ecology of the entire planet Wow! Um, for Dune. Um, and not even just the ecology of the planet, it's like the politics, the economics of the entire like universe galactic sort of system. Um, so some of the, one of the things that possibly it doesn't explain so well in the movie actually is that they have basically like, so Dune's set like 10,000 years in the future and like a long, long time ago, humans had tried to create AI and it had gone wrong and they'd had a, w a war basically. And so from that point on in the sort of Dune universe's history, they, well, humans all agreed not to create any more AIs basically, or any like artificial intelligences, computers based on the human brain. So that forced them to do, create completely different cultures. So they have, the reason that spice is so important is because it sort of um, empowers humans in these sort of evolutionary ways that they have these, like basically human computers so that they they do all the calculating like in their own heads sort of thing because they're empowered all this sort of stuff and so like it's these little bits that you don't really need to know for the story to make sense but it's so in-depth and it's there and it's there and it's so it's there. fun when it's there because yeah. you're like yes and it's, it's the sort of thing where you know you can watch the film and obviously i i watched the film and not really knowing anything it's very difficult to 
follow a bit yeah. sometimes because they're because it's so yeah in that, depth. I feel like that's the pitfall of hard world building mm. is like you kind of got to throw yourself into it and it's kind of yeah and a often steep learning curve. Oftentimes these films and Dune definitely I don't I wouldn't say suffers from it, but it is is like this. They're very very slow to begin with because mm. they've got so much detail to explain. Yeah, that's the other pitfall. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, so I I quite enjoyed the film. I kind of came over like. That seemed really cool, but I don't fully understand everything that went went on. But you can literally go from watching the film, head on to online and find basically encyclopedias yeah. worth of information about the universe that mm. explains things. I was going to say that that links well to not one, one of the things I had thought of, which was the kind of Mad Max franchise and Fury Road in particular, mm. uh, because I, I watched Fury Road knowing nothing about any of it. I hadn't seen the previous film. I had not read any anything that exists around the idea and they kind of masterfully make use of soft world building in the way that like things just are you know that that just is that character just is just by looking at them for long enough you can create your entire own backstory as to who they are and why they are or you know the fact that a character's job is a certain thing and you'd be like oh yeah that's probably because of that and that and that and you don't need to know any of it you don't need to understand any of it for the story to be one of the most kind of engaging things but then again afterwards you can go and read in depth in depth wikis and encyclopedias and kind of books on all of the history so you can learn exactly about kind of characters and societies or you can just not and kind of fill in the gaps yourself and it does that brilliantly and i don't know how i would classify mad max on the hard soft scale it's probably i guess it's somewhere in between but there's like elements that go go in more depth. yeah probably but the way they tell it is more soft i would say that the marvel films are actually a little bit like that yeah because marvel films kind of are just sort of popcorn fun when you go and sit and watch them like you don't necessarily need to know everything you might not pick up on some references but at the end of the day each story is usually a sort of hero villain victory at the end sort of thing like you don't really need to know everything it's just big kind of bombastic fun a lot of the times but then you can go from there and head over to i don't know like the marvel subreddit that's what i often do and there's people who have in-depth knowledge of all the comics who can explain exactly what you saw on screen right yeah although i find often they go too far because a lot of the connections are just kind of there for the sake of being connections mm. yeah every, as opposed to everything is actually definitely mephisto the devil yeah exactly. at the moment that seems to be the subreddit <laughs> thing you know they, they, they've kind of done that but that, that that leads us on to a very important other aspect of this which is environmental storytelling and breath of the wild uh our concluding topic the most amazing video game of all time allegedly Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> I struggle to get into it. I'm not going to lie. That's all right. That's all right. It's, it's not always the best play experience if it's not your style. I've never really played any um, Zelda games before. So. See, that's the thing is I think Breath of the Wild is an excellent game to play as your first Breath of the Wild game because mm, your it first is... Zelda game. Sorry, first <laughs> Zelda game. Uh, because it has basically nothing to do with the rest of the franchise. Reoccurring characters and like the same theme of like conquering great like evil with courage or whatever which is way less emphasized in this game but um i think it's just such a master class in kind of informing you about the world as you go on and like this is a format that a lot of nintendo games take on which is either a silent protagonist or a net like amnesiac protagonist so it's a, it's a um it's a it's a format that many 
companies take on because it's so successful at immersing you in the world. Um, because like it keeps the player from feeling like an idiot because they don't understand something because the protagonist doesn't understand either. So it's really easy to like, it's, it feels more welcoming. It gets you in the world. But the reason why Breath of the Wild is so good, I think, is because the exposition, which is the key um, part of environmental storytelling, is like, how do you expose your reader or player or whatever to the world because there are many ways to do it and there are some ways that are way more successful than others that obviously varies by opinion but generally when you are given a world and this is outside of like books because obviously books you have to read everything um but like with movies or with video games it's like a wall of text telling you about the world usually is not that interesting especially because you are playing a game or watching a movie to engage with that medium not to read if you wanted to read you would go do a book um which is perfectly fine <laughs> uh, i'm not bashing anyone who prefers to read all the power to you um but that's what we get is we get basically the rule of show don't tell which i think breath of the wild does incredibly well because for the first what hour of the game hour and a half depends on how quickly you can master the controls i took like three um <laughs> you are completely isolated on a plateau you cannot get off you can only, but the rest of the world is open around you. You can see everything else. You can see the end game of the, mm -hmm. of the game. Like the end, the final stage or whatever, it's right there. It's right in the center. They call your attention to it because it's this giant, mysterious castle in the middle of a seemingly empty field surrounded by a cloud of malice. And it's just like, that's the only goal you're given at that point. It's like, what's happening? Like, mm -hmm. where, where are we going with this? What's going on? But they don't tell you anything. It's like they have they're not telling you because like Link, the protagonist you're playing as like he doesn't know either. Like he just woke up from he doesn't know how long he doesn't know from what he doesn't know what he's doing here. And neither does the player. Um, and it's just so successfully tells you in ways by not telling you specifically it doesn't tell you anything. You just get off the plateau when you do eventually beat the tutorial level. Again, it took me a long time. Um, and you land in Hyrule. You see, hi, you're in Hyrule Kingdom. And then you just go but what's wonderful about it is like um a lot of uh a lot of media takes place in post-apocalyptic uh it's a very popular genre it's been around forever but like it's even more popular now but what happens a lot with post-apocalyptic or at least like futures it tends to be like or like dystopic is um tends to be like very grungy and like harsh and like very unpleasant <laughs> whereas breath of the wild is post-apocalyptic but the apocalypse like happened all at once and now we're in the aftermath of it but it's not like fallout because fallout still has like it's still quite dark mm -hmm. um but breath of the wild is just like these ruins 100 year old ruins just there covered in moss like there's like monsters kind of like around but they're not like menacing or disgusting or anything they're kind of like brainless idiots um and there's like books and bookshelves that are like scattered all over and like destroyed beds and it doesn't tell you anything but the like nature's like kind of climbing all over everything like these very dangerous mechanical beasts like the guardians the first one that you see is just like defunct but they're really scary so you're kind of slowly introduced to these really terrifying concepts of like oh my god the world ended a hundred years ago but they kind of sh they show it to you before they tell you and I just think they do it in such a successful and interesting way using like silence, 
The game is very quiet. There's not a lot of music, and the music that is there is very in the background. So it, it, you, you really just like kind of get introduced to the world first before you get introduced to the disaster that occurred, which does a really good job of kind of building yourself up to love this world before you're told to save it, because then it gives you a motivation to go through with it, because you're like, this is a beautiful world. I think it deserves to be saved. Because otherwise, if they just throw you in right away and they're like, all right, time to save the world, it's like, ugh, it's just another, like, hero story. Whereas this mm -hmm. one is like, isn't, even though it's been ravaged, even though it's been destroyed, isn't it worth something? So, I think it's great. Honestly, yeah. you could work for Nintendo, because I, 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 did, <laughs> I, I didn't get into the game, well. and I'm now completely sold and want to go and play it. <laughs> give everybody go give play another go. Give, give it another go, too. And, and they, they do do that incredibly. It's the... It's yeah, it's the fact that they just show everything. And then when they do tell you, it's very minimal. You know, it's yeah. either like a little bit of dialogue from a character, usually Impa, uh, or it's kind God of like, her. God bless her, yeah. <laughs> or it's like a book you pick up that mm. has maybe a tiny bit of lore. And it's completely optional. But it's all optional because you can literally, you know, finish the Great Plateau and go straight you can go to the castle. Straight to the castle. You can just knock on Ganon's door and be like, what's up, pighead? I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know. And there you go. That's how you experience the game. And those are the speedruns. Or you can, you know, go and kind of do each stage, meet each different. Kind yeah. Of... And this slow realization that, like, you had a life yeah. before this. And it was taken away and you don't remember any of it. And, you, and at the end of the game, you still don't remember all of you it. You, only, you only remember Zelda. That's it. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to work for Nintendo if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Please hire me. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, that's environmental storytelling. This yeah. actually, I'm just going to do a very short mention. This very much reminds me, and I mentioned it in our last episode about video games, of Hollow Knight. Yes. Because that's very much the same. You just sort of drop in and it took, so I, I think I completed the game in like 20 hours. Mm. And it probably took me a few hours to realize I was a bug. Yeah. Like it... it <laughs> You you don't realize these sort of things wow, for a spoilers. while. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm actually I'm playing Hollow Knight for the first time now, and I'm like, it's, it's a very so, hard game, but it is hard, but it's so fantastic. It's so great because and yeah, you just sort of also the like the dialogue. There's barely there barely is dialogue. Yeah, most of the creatures just sort of have a sort of gibberish. Like and it's it, super cute gibberish. Very it, good really cute acting. gibberish. But like they don't necessarily make any sense and. Unlike other th other hard world built things, there isn't a language. It literally is just gibberish. Yeah. They just make noises. But it's just so captivating yeah. in the world. And it's a in. quiet apocalypse. Like, yeah, you don't same, understand what's going on. You don't on. understand what's happening, but you know something's wrong. Mm. And you know something happened, and now the world is gone. Mm. And like I do know about the the Hollow Knight lore, so I'm like excited to like yeah. see how it unveils. Because it is mm. very Breath of the Wild-like. And then you're just kind of thrown into it, and then it's like... Oh, we're in the fallout of a literal disaster. Mm. Mm. But like nature's taking over and it's so pretty instead of like. It's I, beautiful. It's so yeah. beautiful instead beautiful of like the game. grungy aesthetics of like cyberpunk and whatever. Anyway. <laughs> Apologies. I'm an old lady. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, that I think that brings us to a really good conclusion of this introspective it's... into world building and all of its aspects. Uh, so, Mathilde, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you want to do you want to plug anything? No. <laughs> that is fine. Uh, I will plug it for you. I like my privacy. <laughs> read her articles. Oh, read my articles. Her campus, yeah. Matilde, if you want to read my opinions. If, if you can find them, read them. If you can't find them, respect her privacy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> otherwise, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, families, co-workers, and your Lionels. 
Um, <laughs> and like videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations and we rely on your word of mouth. Yes, we do indeed. So please follow us on Instagram at assemble.it and we'll take a deeper look into the show, our own work and some behind the scenes, outtakes, projects and some updates. Uh, yes, once more, remember to subscribe and share it with your friends, family, co-workers online or we'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samuelis and George Wyeth and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Boatwhistle. This is a 76 Podcasting production.